If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, the 22nd chapter. Excuse me, the 21st chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one. <laughs> you were hoping it was the 22nd chapter. If you don't have a, a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. But when you found Deuteronomy chapter 21, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 21, beginning in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town shall stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. If a man is guilty of a capital offense and is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we ask you for understanding of your word that is truth. So open our ears to hear and our eyes to see and our minds and hearts to understand that truth and to see you and your character displayed within it. We submit ourselves now to you and to the authority of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to ask you what your, what your gut reaction, what is your gut reaction when you hear these verses? Take hold of your stubborn and rebellious son. Take him to the elders and they will stone him to death. You know? <laughs> Wrong reaction. You know, you hear verses like that. What assumptions do you make about God? A God who would issue a command like this. What does it make you think about his character when you read these verses? I thought about moving on from chapter 21 this morning and going on to chapter 22. Because we covered almost all of this chapter. And these verses before us this morning, it's just another scenario that describes more brokenness that exists among God's covenant community. But I didn't skip them because these verses that we have before us can serve us beyond just the specific truth that they, can, that they contain. I think all of us would agree that these are difficult verses. We cringe a little when we read them. And we hope that these are the verses that aren't read when we bring a friend to church. And if you did bring a friend to church this morning, I, you know, I apologize for that. Many... Verses like these are reasons for people not to believe in God. They point to verses like this and say, I will not believe in a God like that. But here's the thing. Either God is God or he is not God. And if God is God, the only way that we can know him is through what he reveals about himself in this word, which is his truth. And this word tells us that God is an unchanging God, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, 
This word tells us that with God, there is no changing. There is no variation. He does not shift like the shadows. And so we come to a passage like this one this morning. And we can learn some principles about how how to deal with difficult passages. Because there are others like these. They come from a God who does not change. I think the first principle that we could understand this morning and hopefully apply to our lives is that Scripture should not be considered as light reading. Scripture, the Word of God, we shouldn't consider it as light reading. The implications of a command to stone a rebellious son, they are serious. Not only for the son, but for his parents, his family, and for the community that is called on to stone him to death. Why does God command it? What does God hope to accomplish through a command like this one? What does it reveal about his character? What response does God want from his covenant people through a command like this? How does a passage like this cause God's people to draw near him instead of flee from him? Does God even want his people to draw near to him? See, we have questions like this when we read verses like these. And so you and I are called upon to to ponder and to meditate upon what the possible answers might be. Because if we don't, we will never have peace with God and we'll never have peace about God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, tells us that the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. The deep Things of God. Other translations read the depths of God. How is it that you expect you will ever discover the deep things of God? Not with a cursory reading of his word. Not by skimming its surface. Not by assuming that the assumptions you make when you first hear a passage like this one are the accurate ones. Sometimes you and I are called on to wrestle with God. We have to wrestle with God over his truth. What must it look like, have looked like for Jacob to wrestle with God? You know, the, the famous Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that Jacob. Scripture tells us that he wrestled with God all night long. And Jacob was determined that he was going to be victorious in this wrestling match as God came to him in the form of a man. So Jacob wrestled hard. And when the man who was wrestling with Jacob saw that he could not overpower him, the man, which was God, touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was out of joint. But Jacob didn't cry, uncle, no. Even when he was hurt, he wrestled on. At daybreak, God said to Jacob, let me go, for it is daybreak. But God had a purpose for this wrestling match with Jacob. God had a purpose for the outcome of this wrestling match, because during it, while Jacob was wrestling with God, Jacob was being transformed. The transformation came when Jacob uttered these words to God. I will not let you go unless you bless me. I will not let you go unless you bless me. So finally, 
after a life of lying, after a life of manipulating, after a life of deceiving, to get the blessings that he craved in his life, finally Jacob understands that true blessing can only come from the Lord. And so when that realization came to him, what did he do? He clung to the Lord. I will not let you go until you bless me. That is a powerfully transformative moment in Jacob's life. The kind that we long for. I know we long for those moments in our lives. Those kind of moments that drastically change us. That bring us to a new dimension of understanding about God. An awful moment. Moments that bring us to a new dimension of trust. That's what we want to happen in our lives. Look, Jacob knew God. His father Isaac was so faithful to teach him about God. But nevertheless, Jacob trusted in his own strength more than he trusted in God to accomplish the goals that he wanted to accomplish in his life until this wrestling match. I will not let you go until you bless me. And I know that I'm not overstating the importance of this moment because God saw this moment as a watershed moment in Jacob's life So much so that he marked the moment by changing Jacob's name. God said to him, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. I'm just saying, blessing comes to us when we wrestle with God through his word. You know, we prefer instant, easy answers to difficult questions. A few years ago, my wife, Kathy, was leading a a women's Bible study. And she was using the method we use here in our community groups. We call it the Entrust Method. And it's based on writing and asking really difficult, really good questions. And my wife is good at asking difficult questions like, Honey, when are you going to fix the the blank? Difficult question. She's really good at asking difficult questions. So she was facilitating this group and one participant in the group finally said to her, can you stop asking these hard questions and just give us the answer? That's what we want. Just give us an answer, quick and easy. But the blessing is often in the wrestling. God, who are you? Why are you like this? Why do you require this? And when we wrestle with God and we wrestle with the truth of his word, Sometimes our worldview is affirmed. Sometimes our worldview is challenged. Sometimes our worldview is completely toppled. Jacob's worldview was that you have to take what you want by your own savvy. But that changed when he wrestled with God. Sometimes when we wrestle, we're exposed. You know, we're wrestling with God's truth and suddenly it dawns on us, hey, I have more the mind of the world then I have the mind of Christ. And that needs to change because I need to have more the mind of Christ. Sometimes when we wrestle long enough, we begin to see new possibilities that we never even imagined before. But only when we get beneath the surface. So I'm calling on all of us, you and me together, let's not be satisfied with a cursory reading of God's word. Let's not rush by difficult passages just because they scare you. 
because you think you don't want to discover what you might discover. If you dig too deep, if you get in that closet, there might be skeletons, bad things about God, and you don't want to know them. I guarantee you it won't happen because God is only and completely good. So dive in, wrestle with the Spirit of God to transform you through His truth. Here's the second principle. The second principle is that needs to be applied to, to passages like this one is called the analogy of faith, okay? The analogy of faith. And that simply means that Scripture must interpret Scripture. This principle is stated in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Follow along. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore... When there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not many but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Scripture interprets scripture. Charles Hodge, who's a famous Presbyterian minister, president of Princeton Seminary, and he wrote this in his Systematics in 1873. If the scriptures be what they claim to be, the word of God, they are the work of one mind, and that mind divine. From it follows that scripture cannot contradict scripture. God cannot teach in one place anything which is inconsistent with what he teaches in another. Hence, scripture must explain scripture. If a passage admits of different interpretations, That only can be true, that only can be the true one which agrees with what the Bible teaches elsewhere on the same subject. Now, wake up. Scripture interprets Scripture, and it's consistent with itself. Everything that God reveals to us, which obviously is not everything, but everything that He does reveal fits with what He knows perfectly. What he does reveal fits perfectly with everything that God knows, which is all things. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because there is only one God. He is unique in being the one and only true and living God. Romans chapter 11, verse 34 asks the question, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Well, what's the answer to that question? No one. Who can interpret God but God himself? What can interpret his truth but his truth? Now you say, well, that's a logical fallacy, completely self-serving, circular reasoning. God's truth is true because Scripture says God's truth is true, and Scripture says God's truth is true because God says his truth is true. It's a good gig if you can get it, you know? And, and God can. What are our options? We can open the field up as wide as we want to. We can uh, receive as many applications as we want to receive. But who will we find who is qualified to judge the God of the universe or the truth that he chooses to reveal? Only scripture can interpret scripture. And that means no one else, no thing else gets that privilege. That means you and me. We don't stand in judgment of Scripture as its interpreter. 
our life circumstances, they don't stand in judgment or as interpreter of God's truth. Our culture certainly doesn't stand in judgment of God's truth or the interpreter of it. It's the other way around. Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets your life. Scripture interprets all the events of your life. And Scripture interprets our culture as well. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. He applied the analogy of faith to his life. Scripture interprets Scripture. And his life wasn't easy. He was the last prophet of the southern kingdom of Judah before God sent them into captivity in Babylon and before Jerusalem was destroyed. And Jeremiah wept because he knew the destruction that was coming to Jerusalem and the devastation. God had revealed it to him. Jeremiah wept because no one would listen to him. No one would repent. For decade after decade after decade, Jeremiah warned the people they wouldn't listen, so he wept. Jeremiah wept because his life was a lonely life. God said to him, you may not marry, and you may not have children, which was a mercy given the devastation that was coming. But nevertheless, it was a lonely life for Jeremiah, so he wept. He wept because he experienced persecution in his life, because he spoke boldly the word of God. Jeremiah is considered by many scholars to be the author of the the book of Lamentations because he certainly lamented. And this is what he wrote in chapter 3. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, my wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it. My soul is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. See, that's the analogy of faith applied to life. Scripture and nothing else interprets God. God revealed himself to Moses as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's the truth of God's word as he revealed it. Jeremiah's pain and Jeremiah's suffering did not feel like the abounding love of God. It did not feel like the abounding grace of God. It certainly didn't feel like the abounding compassion of God. And yet what was Jeremiah's conclusion? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is the faithfulness of the Lord. That love and grace and compassion didn't look like how Jeremiah would have written it for his own life. It didn't feel like it. But Jeremiah knew that his life was accomplishing part of the bigger plan of God, that it truly was the love of God. And so he interprets his own life 
according to what Scripture says is true about God and not what appears to be true about his life. And so you and I have to apply the analogy of faith to our own lives. You know, your life may seem to contradict the truth of God, his grace, his love, his compassion. But God is God and he is unchanging. And your life and the bigger world around you, we've got to interpret them by the truth of God's word. So the analogy of faith. Now, let's wrestle with the passage that we've read this morning and apply the analogy of faith to it. I want you to think back about the assumptions that you made when you first heard this verse read. And I mean, y'all laughed, so there was some nervousness or something going on there. Maybe you, you heard me read that and you thought, well, God is awfully harsh. God is cruel. God is unforgiving. And that is what you may conclude if you don't start with the analogy of faith. So what do you and I know to be true about God? 1 John chapter 4. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Now there is a clear and unequivocal statement, explicit in its meaning, beyond question, God is love. Same truth is clearly stated in other places in Scripture, most famously in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, God loved the world so much, not just a little, God loved the world so much, that he sent Jesus, his son. Clear and unequivocal. So knowing this to be true about God, we approach this passage positing that God is love and seeking to find where his loving character is revealed in it. And this is where the wrestling begins. But this is a good and the right thing to do, to think thoughts like this about God, who has proven himself to be loving over and over again. You and I don't begin from a position of suspicion or aggression with the aim of finding fault with God. God deserves better than that from us. Don't you think so? On the surface of this passage, it may not seem that God is loving, but neither is it clear that he is not. So what do we do? We wrestle with what we read. What does it mean? Let's begin with the son. The verse tells us some things about this son. Verse 18, if you look there, tells us that this son is stubborn and rebellious and disobedient. We can assume we know what that means, but that might not end us up in the right place. So what do we do? Well, we let scripture interpret scripture. And it fills out for us what rebellion looks like. The same word is used in Zephaniah chapter 3. It reads, woe to the city who is rebellious and defiled. She listens to no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence 
to the law. That's what rebellion looks like. The entirety of Psalm 78, all of it, is about a stubborn and rebellious nation. The same words are used. Over and over it says in the psalm that that the people did not keep God's covenant. They refused to live by his law. They forgot what God had done for them. In spite of all that God had done, they kept on sinning. In spite of the wonders, they did not believe. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They put God to the test. They rebelled against the Most High. They did not keep his statues. Unlike their fathers, they were disloyal and faithless. One more, Jeremiah chapter 5. These people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They've turned aside and gone away. They do not say to themselves, let us fear the Lord our God, who gives autumn and spring rains, who assures us of the regular weeks of harvest. Your wrongdoings have kept these away. Your sins have deprived you of good. Among my people are the wicked. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not seek justice. They do not promote the cause of the fatherless. They do not defend the cause of the poor. A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies and the priests rule by their own authority and my people love it this way. Now I read these passages to highlight the kind of rebellion displayed by this son doesn't look like staying out until 1 o'clock a.m. when his parents said, son, you be home by midnight. It's not the kind of rebellion that looks like borrowing the keys to the camel without first asking permission from his mom and dad. That's what we think is rebellious. We'll kill him. He took the car without asking permission. We're not given the specifics of the son's stubbornness and his rebellion. But we have to understand that whatever it is, it's behavior that is destructive. Destructive not only to him and his family, but to an entire community. So why should this young man be free to roam the town? Why should he be allowed to influence everyone else in the town and get them into trouble with him? Where do the rights of the rebellious son end and the rights of everyone else in the covenant community begin? Don't pity this rebellious son. And it is truly to our shame that we side with him first against God. But I know that's what we do. Verse 20 adds that the son is a profligate. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's like the son that Jesus describes in the parable in Luke 15. He demands the wealth of his father that's coming to him as an inheritance And he goes off and he lives for himself. He's aimless and he's thoughtless and he squanders the entire fortune until he has nothing left. He's spent it all. And his only job he can find is feeding the pigs and the only food that he can find to eat is the food that he's feeding to the pigs. And so when every means of correction have been attempted and when every means of correction is ignored, both parents and the community and the rebellious son He is to be put to death for the sake of the community. Because God loves his people. Because God wants to protect his people. Because God loves the world and wants to bless the world through his people. He is allowed to remove this stubborn, rebellious, unrepentant, drunken, profligate son from among them. Who are we to say that God 
if he's truly loving, must continue to allow the son to live. Neither is there anything unfair in the decision to stone the rebellious son. See, implied in these verses is that the elders would hear the case and make a ruling because that was the job given to them. So again, listen, we've got to apply the analogy of faith. Scripture interprets Scripture. And if you read this passage lightly, if you don't dive beneath the surface, you may assume that God is unfair. You know, you would think that the parents bring their son to the elders, make their accusation, and then the elders say, stone him. You could point to this chapter and verse and say, see, it doesn't mention a trial anywhere in these verses. Only the parents are allowed to speak. It's true. These specific verses don't delineate a trial. But we apply the analogy of faith. What does it say back in Deuteronomy chapter 16? We already studied that passage. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. A trial can't be fair if both parties aren't permitted to speak. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone. Well, you favor the parent if you don't listen to the son. You pervert justice if you don't allow the son to speak. Deuteronomy 17. If cases come before your courts that are too difficult for you to judge, take them to the place the Lord your God will choose. Go to the priest, who are the Levites, and to the judge, who is in office at the time. See, God has already established his court system for his people, and that's where the parents bring this rebellious son. And just like in any other trial, if the evidence convicts the son, and if the son stands before his parents and the court and refuses to repent, then he is to be put to death, and rightly so. But if the son repented, what would happen? There would be forgiveness. Do these verses say that? No. But the analogy of faith tells us what God does with sons who repent. The prodigal son repented. He acknowledged, I have sinned against my father. I have sinned against heaven. He acknowledged, I am no longer worthy to be called the son of my father. And that prodigal son came to his senses and he returned to his father. And what was the father's response? You know this story, don't you? The father had compassion on the son. The father ran out to the son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The father prepared a great feast to celebrate the fact that his son had returned. And the same would have been true for this rebellious son if he had repented. Because we know from scripture that God is a loving and forgiving God. And so my hope this morning as we end up in looking at a passage like this one, is that you and I together would have right thoughts about God. How good he is to love his community enough to protect it in this way. This is who God is. He's a God who seeks to love and to protect his people.
A God who loves the world enough that he sends his people that he knows and loves out into the world with the good news of the gospel and of blessing through faith in Christ. And so I feel ashamed of myself when I don't first and always assume the best of God when I come to a difficult passage like this one. And I feel ashamed when I assume the worst of God and require him, okay, Lord, prove it to Craig. As if he hasn't already proved himself loving and faithful enough by dying on the cross for me. And I feel ashamed when I let the circumstances of my life, when they don't go the way that I think they should go, make me think wrong thoughts about God. And I feel ashamed when our culture makes me think wrong thoughts about God. Or when I remain silent, when they say wrong things about God, just because God will not allow them to do what they want to do. Because he loves them too much to allow them to bring themselves to destruction. And so they call God harsh and cruel and unloving. God has proven himself otherwise. And he's the one who says in these very verses, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. And yet Jesus, God's son, and not a rebellious son, a good son, a perfect son, a beautiful son, did just that, hung on the tree. You know why? Because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is the faithfulness of the Lord. Proven to you and me and Jesus the Christ. The one who heals all the brokenness. All the brokenness that we've seen in Deuteronomy chapter 21. He's the one who gives hope. He's the one who gives life. Think these thoughts about God and assume them always to be true. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word, for all of it. Father, we thank you for your spirit that leads us into the understanding of your truth. And Lord, I'm sure that there are those, myself included, who need to ask your forgiveness once again for thinking wrong thoughts about you, thinking unworthy thoughts of you. First assuming, Lord, that you are harsh or cruel or unloving, we react when we read verses like this without first bothering to really delve into them, to assume the, to assume the best of you, Lord, and, and look in these verses and these commands for ways that you demonstrate your love. Love to that son, providing an opportunity to repent in his family and love for the community and protecting him, preserving them, even in taking the life of this son if he refuses to, to repent. Lord, you are good and loving. Your steadfast love never, never ceases. 
and your mercies never come to an end. Forgive us when they believe, when we believe that they do. Lord, inspire us now that you are the one and only true and living God, that you are a God of love, that you never change. There's no shadow of turning in you. You are our faithful, dependable, loving, gracious, good, great, compassionate God. Help us take that as our starting point, no matter what we face in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.